Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Makana is an award-winning slack-key guitar player, singer-songwriter, and composer based in Hawaii. He's performed for presidents and other world leaders and had his music featured on the Grammy-nominated soundtrack for The Descendants. When we connected for this interview, Makana was in the midst of a joyful renewal as an artist and human being. Welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Aloha. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. And for people who may not know who you are, who are listening, um, what would you like to say about yourself? Like, how do you talk about yourselves these days in 2020? I like that you said myself. That's pretty accurate. There are many. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm an artist, a professional artist. Very privileged to be one. I'm born and raised in Hawaii. I have lived most of my life in Honolulu, but mm. traveled extensively around the earth. Um, I have spent the younger part of my life learning from the masters of a rare guitar art that's indigenous to Hawaii called Kihoalu or Hawaiian slack key guitar. Mm. And um, dedicated my life to perpetuating and evolving that traditional folk art. Um, and brought it into a lot of other contexts outside of traditional wine music as well. And beyond that, I'm a, a singer and a songwriter, and um, I try to use my art um, in, in activism in a way that benefits communities and um, brings attention to issues that I feel um, oppress people and... Um, and hurt the environment and things like that. So I, I write songs about these sorts of issues. Sure. Um, and, that, and that's what motivates my art. Cool. And has that always been the case or is that something you kind of evolved into? Uh, it started very young, um, but it has definitely evolved. I, I, I remember doing my first benefit for Save Ka'ivi Coast, which is a beautiful area on the east side of Oahu that was threatened with development mm. 30 years ago. Uh, and it, it, it just a few years ago got put into a permanent conservation land trust. So it was a long battle by a lot of community members. And that was my first taste of, of um, being part of a movement to protect something. Mm. What do you remember about that? Oh, I remember being at Sandy Beach that I loved and going to the park where they would fly kites because it was always windy there. And Uncle Rim and Kane, the master of slack key from Nanakuli, 
um, playing and them inviting me on stage to play. And, and uh, I remember seeing the signs and hearing the adults talk about why they were there and it interested me. Mm. Did, did the, in that case, did it feel like the adults were like more interesting than they normally are <laughs> just <laughs> from a kid's view? You know, when I was younger, adults were really, really interesting to me. My best friends in high school were the teachers. Mm. Um, as I've gotten older, I'm 41 now. Mm -hmm. Adults are less interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got, I've perhaps walked a similar path. I always wanted to grow up and hung out with adults. And now I'm working on regressing. I'm 42. <laughs> so there you go. So you had some, um, you kind of, I don't know when you got started with music, maybe you could talk about that and how that sure. evolved into, um, into finding mentors and heroes and that kind of thing. Well, I was very blessed to have a lot of good training when I was young. I started in the Honolulu Boy Choir when I was only seven and they were very strict. Um, I did hundreds of performances with them and uh, that was before my voice changed and right when your voice changes they give you a graduation ceremony which is a graceful way of kicking you out wow. <laughs> um and then uh you go through that awkward phase as as a like 11 12 13 year old when as a male your voice is changing during that time um well before that i got into ukulele and learned from roy sakuma who is an incredible uh, well-known teacher of ukulele with his own schools across Hawaii. And then at 11, got into slack key guitar, learning from Bobby Modero Jr., who was a protege of Raymond Kane, mm -hmm. one of the legends on Oahu. And then eventually um, we were awarded a grant from the State Foundation on Culture and the Arts for me to study under Sonny Chillingworth, uh, who was a renowned legend of the art form. And he then passed away the following year um, so I was very blessed to have that tutelage. And then after that, uh, there weren't, it was not easy to find a teacher of that art form. There already were very few performers of it. And so I mm. turned to recordings and just spent my teenage years absorbing and mimicking note for note, every single recording I could get my hands on from all the different family lineage styles. And, and uh, my family was very strict with exposures. They were, very religious and so up until the end of high school I was only exposed to Hawaiian music so I have a really deep immersion in Hawaiian music in those years mm. uh, which became the foundation for all of my art and and then um, when I was about 18 my parents separated and divorced and my dad did a full 180 and brought home Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and started Black <laughs> House and it shocked me and i my older friends who were like in their 30s and 40s started turning me on to everything from you know 60s folk icons to 80s music to jazz and celtic guitar styles um and mm. i just realized that music was this incredibly diverse world that i could explore from my bedroom Hmm. I mean, these were the days before the internet, and for me, music was the internet. Um, it was, it was just so exciting. I, recordings for me transported me, and and um, I just would spend sometimes eighteen hours a day playing guitar. Hmm. <laughs> That's obsession. Yeah, I became obsessed with it, and and but it was giving so much back to me. I mean, by the time I graduated, I was already playing four to five nights a week around the island. And it became a career instantly where I was able to move out and pay rent and take care of myself and mm. actually help my family with rent even through the high school years. And it was, I was very, very blessed to have such an opportunity. So it, it happened very naturally for me. And, and um, I have a lot of discipline. So it's easy for me to focus on something for long periods of time. And that came in really handy in learning uh, the guitar and, and developing my art. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, 
muscle coordination involved with the stringed instruments before you can maybe feel that gratification and payoff. There is, and with slack key guitar in particular, it's a unique art form because it's you slack the keys or you, you actually change the tuning. So, um, and it's not just one tuning it can be done with many tunings. So mm. I use currently over a hundred tunings and every time I'm in a different tuning, um, it requires a different configuration on the fretboard, which means the muscle memory changes. And so I have a pretty vast bank of muscle memory on the guitar. It's, it's, it's fascinating and it definitely is something you build over time. Yeah. So <laughs> no instant, no instant wins in that, in that world. Um, so you, you talk about the tradition of slack key and Hawaiian slack key. And I'm curious what the word tradition meets, means to you in that context around music and to the me, art tra- form. Yeah. Tradition is a living entity. It's it's breathing, it's inhaling, and it's exhaling, and and um, there are people who consider themselves purists, and they look at tradition as something that is associated solely with the past. And I disagree. I I strongly feel that um, the art of perpetuating a tradition is actively participating in it. Um, not from the objective perspective solely, but also from the subjective perspective. Meaning, I can't just look at the art firm and say, well, 50 years ago, liner notes of slack key guitar LPs said it was a dying art form, therefore, and now now more of the masters have passed, so therefore, um, perpetuating the tradition means mimicking them and making sure all their music stays alive and not changing it at all because it's threatened. That would be partially true, but also detrimental because when I pass on in in 50 or 100 years or whatever it is, then it's like what happens to the art form during this whole window of time? Has it evolved? Has it stagnated? And there's no way for us to recreate what was created 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago. Hmm. Um, So the best thing I think the best approach to perpetuating a tradition is, is to simultaneously go backwards in time and forwards in time. And that's what I try to do. I'm constantly going back and refreshing my roots and mimicking and learning from old recordings what was done. Very clear that I cannot become those players. I can't be Gabby Pahinui or Sunny Chillingworth, but I can, mm-hmm. I can mimic close enough to carry on the techniques, the tunings, the nuance to the next generation. But at the same time, I must evolve it. You know, if you look back to their music, now we hear it and we say in Hawaii, well, that's traditional slack key guitar. But in the time it was first released, it was a radical departure Mm. from what was considered traditional. Mm. So over time, we forget that. And that's why I have the philosophical view that I do of tradition is that in any given moment, something that's newly introduced is not considered traditional, but over time it becomes part of the fabric of tradition. And if any generation stops their participation in that role, then it, it is very detrimental to the art form as a living, breathing entity. It then becomes a relic. Mm of itself. Hmm. Have you seen, you know, do you feel that that has happened with other art forms or is that a discussion that comes up? Are there people who, who it, that you have conversations with in the profession that, that do think it should be more of a tradition? Well, I should say archivist perspective. Oh, of course. I mean, when I was growing up and after Sonny died, I had no one to look out for me. Sonny was, was pretty radical. And, and, um, I got a lot of, um, criticism for doing what I was doing. I would walk off stage from a standing ovation, 2000 people. And as soon as I walked backstage, one of the elders would grab me by the ear and chide me, Mm. you know, and, and that's when I knew I was doing something right. 
I always remember Jimi Hendrix's album, Blues. And of course, what a departure from Sunhouse or Robert Johnson, but he served as a bridge for people who had no relationship to the tradition. And, mm -hmm. and that's what I try to do in my music. You know, I, I don't have any desire to go on stage and do the music of Auntie Alice, the Makelua from the early 1900s, but I can. And if you ask me to, I can, or sometimes I'll play one. Um, but if you discover my music and you get curious about the older styles, you can then walk across what I've offered back in time to see those. And, and I think that um, there are a lot of people in, I think every art form, there are different perspectives and some people are like, no, you can't change it. You know, you have to keep it the way it was. And, you know, I, I really pay no mind to them. I, you, you also should not be ignoring where the art came from and just doing your own thing. And the mm -hmm. reason why I say should, because should is a dangerous word in art, is you risk uh, operating from a, a, a very large blind spot in, in retreading what's been done, thinking it's new. Mm. Um, the whole purpose of a lineage, a tradition, a legacy is to work with what's been done before you and create something new that is inspired and informed by what's been done before. Um, mm. Otherwise, you're just doing your own thing. And that's awesome. Some people just like, I remember Bjork said once, you know, when I was growing up, I never listened to any singer, which I really find hard to believe. But she said, <laughs> I any singers because I wanted to sound only like myself. And I thought, that sounds ridiculous, but it's a great idea. Yeah. You know, it's, it's totally opposite of the path that I've taken. But she definitely sounds like herself. And that's cool. Um, but in the role of perpetuating a tradition, like I was given a, a, a responsibility, or Hawaiians call it a kuleana to keep this art form alive. And so mm -hmm. there are responsibilities there and I'm very keenly aware of them. And that's why I've taken the path I have of learning all the family styles as best I can and recording a lot of the older musics. And in fact, over the past two years, I've recorded well over a hundred public domain Hawaiian songs, which means they're older, mm -hmm. published older than 90, three or 95 years ago. And mm -hmm. I'm very much deeply in that um, process of keeping the old style alive. Mm. Have you been learning anything in the process of doing that? Of course. Um, I've been learning my way around the studio and production and, and um, been producing in many genres. Um, I've been working with Facebook uh, to create music for a, publicly available free music library on their platform. Right. And uh, so I've learned so much um, and I've been working in many genres and it's, it's the freedom is incredible. Um, every week creating something different and um, there are no boundaries and it's, it's just really exhilarating to have the kind of mobility that I'm experiencing in the studio right now. Mm, because well it used to be a very cumbersome process i mean you know in the olden days it could take months to do a song uh i mean everybody's different but um it was a much longer process and i generally outsourced a lot of the things i'm doing myself now because i didn't know how to do them or was afraid of not knowing how to do them and mm. and the facebook project has given me the impetus to um, just do it. And over time, um, I'm getting ready to, to do, um, a fan release of a lot of the material. And over time, um, people will be able to hear the depth of the production and how things have evolved. I mean, a lot of my records up until now have been, it's ironic because a lot of my records have been very purist, very just guitar and voice or just guitar. Like even some of them are like absolutely no track laying, like Venus and the Sky Turns to Clay. Like that was the rule. Like, and it, mm. some of the tracks sound like three guitars and have big arguments with people, but it's like, nope, that's one guitar and I'll play it live and they'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and now um, I still love doing that, but now, I mean, 
we're 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 layering and building worlds and and it's it's just a lot of fun to give myself permission to do that mm, sounds like creative play in some way yeah definitely yeah. and you're bringing that to your professional work which which i know for for many of us creatives can you know be a challenge um, it's a definitely a blessing and a privilege that I never take for granted. Have you ever been in a place where you weren't having fun with, with the music or being a music professional and it was oh, maybe yeah. influencing your, your creative process? Oh, I've always had fun with my creative process. Mm. Uh, I've definitely had a very stressful journey in terms of being an independent artist and um, handling the business. Um, it takes up a massive amount of my bandwidth and, mm. um, it requires constant education and adaptation. Um, mm. very adaptable, but it's, it's difficult to hire help in the music industry because, uh, it, the adaptation required is, is so intense and it, the, 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 the curve of change is so steep that, mm. Um, there's not a, there's no place where anyone can go and just learn the skill sets required. Mm. Um, even CEOs of record companies are clueless a lot of the time. Yeah, that was even over a decade ago, true. I, so yeah. I remember in the context we met, I remember actual record label CEOs of the big, you know, the big labels saying, yeah, we don't know what you need to do if you're starting out now to be successful. That's because somewhere along the way, CEOs became basically high paid accountants. Mm. You know, and I mean, this is what capitalism does is it distorts value and distorts perspective so that everything is viewed in a framework of competition and of externalities that are agreed upon by a, a, a society that is beholden to a mythology. Mm. And so it puts everyone in an, in an uncomfortable, awkward position, including artists, because now artists um, have to, and, you know, in the time you're talking about artists, there was no artist development anymore. It was like, you have to develop yourself and build your fan base on your own. And then if you can build your market share enough to where we notice you, then we'll invest in you. Right. That's, that's exactly what they were saying 12 years ago. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, is like, if I can do that, then I don't need you. <laughs> that's yeah, it's not really a question. It's, it's, yeah. it's a fact, right? You know, it just really depends on the goals of the individual. I mean, for me, I yeah. never, I never wanted fame. I always thought fame would ruin my life and it's toxic. And I've, I've been very careful about managing it. Um, I've always wanted freedom. Mm. And I had record label offers since I was 14 that I turned down. So what, what gave you that kind of perspective or belief that, that fame and that path would would hamper you or destroy you even that's a pretty strong statement for especially for a 14 year old oh vh1 rockumentaries <laughs> behind the music yeah totally i mean every time i would watch one of those i'd be like wow that guy got fucked yeah like you know, there was no way i was gonna like everyone who i thought was like all happy and I mean, it's just, everyone had so much drama and problems. I was, I was yeah. thinking to myself, this doesn't, this doesn't look like something I, I should pursue. You know what? I don't understand what's the point. They have a fancy car. Yeah. And now we have the advantage of more time. We see a lot of, you know, heroes dropping dead early from, you know, needing, needing help sleeping at night and being pain free from the rigors of it all. It's a toxic culture, um, for sure. But you know, there were times when I regretted 
saying no to everything. I mean, you know, huge management deals, big publishing deals, record label deals. I said no to everything. Mm. Um, I just had to power through at times I was broke at times, you know, I got ripped off by different people I was working with Mm -hmm. for lots of money. Um, And it was my college. You know, you, you, you can't go to college and learn the music industry. It's, it's absolutely impossible. Mm. You, you have to learn it through being in it. Yeah. And you have to know how to hustle. There is no doubt about it. It's a total hustle. And, and if you don't think ahead of the curve, then you get flattened when it changes. And right now it's very concerning to me to see a lot of my friends unable to make rent because of the shutdown. Yeah. And as Um, we record this, it's March 25th, right? As we're all shut down. Yeah. So it's like a lot of these people are just incredible artists with such unique offerings. I mean, it's amazing what Hawaii has to offer and um, they're out of work because they're the majority of their income is based in gigging. And, and I've been saying to a lot of them for a long time, you know, you, you have to diversify because, you know, first of all, the body is a fragile thing. And if you, you, you place all of your dependence on your income on having to physically move around and travel and go perform, Hmm. you know, you, you, you're not very secure in your income. You have to look at creating as many tributaries as possible that are constant and renewable and understanding the music industry is of course complex. But one of the things I did early on, and I think I mentioned this in the lecture that I gave that you attended in Kauai Hmm. was about understanding just, just knowing what are the tributaries, what are the various kinds of income streams in our business. And and a lot of artists can't even, name them and so um there's a lot to be done in terms of creating a a support infrastructure for artists so that they understand uh basic legalities around their rights they understand um how to create sustainable income streams that don't require them to constantly put in put out effort you know what is uh, understanding publishing all of these things and it was a long arduous process and I'm still learning, but I'm very blessed to have a keen understanding um, of, of those issues because that's what keeps us going in times like this. Yeah. That is a good thing to call out. It's not just about the craft and art of creating the thing that's like going to get you ahead. I imagine you don't get very far if you don't know how to put your music to use um right yeah and they call it intellectual property for a reason i know now you you uh you were able to create an additional stream of income when when you started getting song placements in film and tv um like how did you come into that uh, you know, a lot of those opportunities, along with a lot of other opportunities that came to me throughout my career were happenstance, random, seemingly random relationships, things like that. So mm. it's hard, hard to quantify per yeah. se. Part of the uh, hustle. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was just a random call, like, you know, Hey, this is, um, Melissi Valenti, we represent the Hawaii Visitors Convention Bureau. We have a project. We want you to score our entire, you know, multi-million dollar TV campaign promoting Hawaii all mm. over the world. So, I, I mean, it wasn't necessarily things that I did except just focusing on building my reputation. Because mm. when you're an artist in a small market like Hawaii, um, your reputation is everything, mm. is everything. 
it's your market value is completely determined by how your community views you. Mm. Maybe, maybe you should say more about that. Uh, yeah. It's not so, something I see discussed a lot. So, I mean, I was very careful about how I was viewed, whether it was managing my online presence or just being careful about where I performed, what sort of things I performed for, making sure I did. I mean, I, I built my career doing charities. That was how I built it in the early years. I did, I would say 70% of performances were free for causes that I believed in and supported for a good decade. That's mm. how much I gave to my community in order to get in front of audiences mm. and to build relationships. And I've scaled back somewhat because it's unsustainable for one person to do that much, but um, it really was how I started out. And um, carefully, you know, creating a reputation based on associations with different causes and, and, you know, different organizations and, and, uh, all these different things. I mean, but I also did a lot of risque things. I'm an activist. I, I was very vocal, whether it was in the legislature or, um, in many of the, the, the issues that came through Hawaii, whether it was, uh, marriage equality or, or biotech agriculture, um, environmental issues, all this right. kind of stuff. I mean, I definitely made enemies, but I chose my enemies and I made sure that, um, I didn't, I, 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 I never shit where I eat, meaning <laughs> you know, here's a good example. It's like when I was asked by Michelle Obama to play at the world leaders dinner, and this was after you played at the White House. Right. At the, the APIC conference in, mm -hmm. in 2011 or something. Um, and I did what I did, which was a political poetic protest during the dinner with 21 presidents and prime ministers hosted by the Obamas. And it became a number one story in the world on Yahoo and it just went viral. Um, three of the Democratic senators at the time tried to have me blacklisted in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. They started calling different companies, I won't say who, different bank heads and all that. And, and it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. And, yeah. and everyone stood up for me because, not because they agreed with my politics, but because when I work with them, I didn't bring politics in. Hmm. And there's a time and place for things. And you have to... You can do whatever you want, but you're going to get the results that, you know, you get by your actions. I mean, there's a consequence to your choices. And I'm very vocal in the right forums, mm -hmm. but I don't just attack people blindsidedly and just bring things up out of context because that's not a good way to get people to listen. Mm -hmm. You have to know when and where you can get people to listen and get them on board with your messaging. And if you manage that carefully with, with an understanding of your community, your culture and your relationships, then you can, I think, successfully help your community in ways that you want to and yet still build a career um, successfully. And because you know, when you're a, an artist, they always tell you stay out of politics, it'll ruin your career. Hmm. I did the opposite. So, um, you know, the other thing though, beyond that is, 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 uh, you'll see like a big name Hawaiian entertainer performing at, uh, a free venue where there's a bar or something. And this is more in the past 10 years, things have really changed a lot. Yeah. And then at some point they'll do a show at a theater or something and they'll charge 30 or 50 bucks. And it's like, well, I just, I can see you free at the bar. Why would I go pay that? Mm -hmm. And things like that. And, you know, or, or I just saw you at the beach or whatever. And so because you get no, your brand gets normalized, then it's like people aren't motivated to come out and pay to see you. So what I actually did for many years over and over in a cycle was every so many years, I would do a big press release that I'm moving away. <laughs> 
Yeah, I see where this is going. Uh, so I've moved to LA six yeah. times now. And uh -huh. I will go there for like, you know, a few months or whatever. And I'm, I'm always there multiple times a year working. But, um, and I have a place there. But it doesn't matter because I'm a musician. We're in constant motion. It doesn't matter where we reside. And so at that point, everyone freaks out and says, you know, wow, we want to hire you. And, and they, they get worried that they're never going to see you again. Cause I guess they forget that we have planes. Mm -hmm. So it's really beneficial because my brand is not normalized. You know, like when they have an advertisement where it says, um, Waikiki shell presents, you know, and there's, there's like 10 artists in a row. Like I always tell them like, I don't want my name in that ad because I don't want my name in a list of other artists' names. And it's just psychological brand management mm -hmm. um, that over time I learned doesn't mean anything per se, mm -hmm. except how people perceive the value of the brand and how you manage access and, and the desire for the public to interface with your art. It's mm. interesting to think about. And so between that and kind of talking about managing, creating multiple streams of income, um, more of a business question here. So you, you're working on creating these um, songs that are in the public domain for use, free, free for use on Facebook and Instagram. And so I guess the question is, like, how does that benefit you professionally? Um. Well, we have a deal which I can't talk about, mm -hmm. uh, but it benefits me in a lot of ways. Um, besides financially, it benefits me in the um, the deep experience that I'm gaining focusing on doing this production. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm probably over 200 songs produced in the last two years now. Mm. 200. Um, there's a wealth of experience that comes with that. Um, my skill sets are growing exponentially. I'm no longer just a guitar player and a singer songwriter. Mm. Uh, so I have now the ability to realize a broader range of my musical visions. Um, it's, it's also, um, opened the door to me producing other artists. Yeah and creating in genres I never dabbled in. I mean, there's one song I remember, I brought in D. Shannon Higa, who's the head arranger for the Royal Hawaiian Band, and he's an incredible uh, trumpet player. And I brought him in to do some bugle work, and mm -hmm. we asked him to just play, just to a click, so, so it was in a certain time signature. And with no music, just random. And we recorded that, and he left, and sat down with it, listened to everything and cherry picked some of the performances and then uh, built a beat under it. And then I did ukulele all around it. And it's just one of the most magical songs I've ever mm. done called Bliss Hill. And it's, it's such a surprising discovery to see how ukulele and, and bugle mm. sound together. It's unbelievable. It's like the sexiest song I've ever done. And everyone who hears it is like, this is the coolest shit you've ever made. Cool. I look forward to hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there, you know, because there's a, there's a, I, I, I'm in a high quota. I produce a lot. Mm. Uh, uh, the biggest benefit for me has been this, and this really blows my mind is before this project, when I would approach, like, first say, you know, we don't really do albums anymore. Now we're releasing collections of playlists. But when we were doing albums, you know, there was so much, so much, I guess I would say, such a steep wall that a song had to get over to get included. Mm -hmm. it, it was such a careful selection process. And, and it, you know, it had to fit in the Makana brand, which is really diverse, but still has its, its boundaries. And, and it, it was really like, well, is this really the direction I want to go? And there were all these considerations that would stifle just raw inspiration. And now those are all gone. Like mm. now I go in and I can do anything. I mean, 
rap, hip hop, jazz. We're doing bluegrass. I've invented a genre called slackgrass. <laughs> uh, I brought in a string quartet last week. Uh, we're doing uh, 1960s style folk. We're doing R&B, soul. We're doing like Earl Clue kind of stuff. Like, I mean, I'm doing uh, electronica with slack key, um, alternative folk, electronic folk. Um, I mean, there's, it, it goes on forever. And so what I'm saying is, is now the freedom is so exhilarating. It's like I've completely obliterated my identity, which I always wanted to do. And I just create music. That does sound very freeing. And you mentioned you have a, so you have a quota. And so I imagine coming with that is the power of deadlines, right? Yeah, we've learned to, to work extremely fast. And one of the things I've learned is, is about risk in the creative process. And I've always been the kind of person who will spend, it doesn't matter if it's 500 hours alone preparing so that when I walk on stage, there is no risk. Mm. And I'm, I've changed now. I've, because I've mastered an art form and been able to do these incredible performances with this instrument, I've experienced that and, and I've wanted to experience the other side of it where, of course, you want to be prepared, but where there's more risk-taking, where there's more vulnerability, where it's not about mastery anymore. It's about human connection. And, and both in the studio and on stage, recently I did a few shows where I debuted a lot of the new music and, and there was everything from all, all the genres I included, including opera and... Uh, uh, ukulele jazz instrumentals and, and all sorts of things out of my comfort zone mm. and, and the audience got it I was you know I was worried I was I was scared because I really challenged them and I said you know I'm doing maybe 60 or 70 percent of this stuff has ne never been performed ever mm. and mm -hmm. um, I've only played it once the time I created it and so I had to relearn it and and I'm not going to play you just what I always do because even though that's my stronger material and I can do it, you know, first nature, I want to show you some of the ideas I've been creating, where Hawaiian music can potentially go. And also I want to show you vulnerability. And so that has really become a facet of my creative process is being able to go in and just have a sliver of an idea and just run with it and see where it takes me and not be afraid. Oh, is this something good enough to show the world? That mm. whole attitude has, I've, I've let it go. Now I'm so open and allowing myself the freedom to explore where I wouldn't allow myself to explore before. And the result of this process has been immense discovery. Mm. Mm. And is there more to this immense discovery beyond, you know, finding these new genre combinations? And is there something you're seeing from the audience in terms of that evolution? I haven't, I mean, I haven't been performing lately, so I've only done those few shows. Um, so we'll have to see, you know, how it goes. But I'm just about to start releasing it. I mean, basically, my entire career was in front of an audience until two years ago. And then I really went underground into my studio and produced this giant body of work. And so I, I really can't say yet until I release it, which is happening soon. Um, but for me, it's, it's just incredibly fulfilling. It's yeah. so fulfilling. You know, there's this, this whole attitude that pervades the industry that really your band is a brand or you're, you're a brand and you have to, um, you have to, really qualify your sound so that it's instantly recognizable. Some people call it an aural signature and, and that's what you want to build toward. And for me, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to criticize that, but for me, that is, is like total bondage. Mm. Um, I mean, I like playing, I have a few different identities I play with and, and have music under them that kind of stays in a lane, mm -hmm. but I've said from interviews since I was a child, music is an exploration for me. 
And um, that's my philosophical approach to it. And I'm, and being able to live it and make a living doing it is so profoundly fulfilling. And that's what I want to share with artists is, you know, this idea that it's a competition and we have to get on the charts and uh, it's just, it's a lie. It's a mm. sick capitalistic lie. You know, I was watching the voice the other night cause I, I haven't had TV in 10 years and I got a TV and everyone on there was incredible. It was so amazing. The, the stars, the, the talent, um, the, the, the contestants, but the framework was so disgusting to me. You know, the idea that this is a battle and like when they do a duet, it's a battle. Like, I mean, it's, it's stupid. Like, it's not a battle. It's a duet. Why does everything have to be a battle? And why do you mm -hmm. have to fight? Why are there winners and losers? And why do you have to choose and make someone lose? I mean, yeah. it's so uncreative. It's, it's just so gross to me. And I, yeah. I got asked to be on The Voice when they first started it. And I said, no, because I don't, I don't subscribe to that construct of we all need to compete and there can only be one winner and everyone else is a loser. That is not me. Yeah. So I wanted to come back to this word kuleana that you mentioned. So what does that mean to you, like personally and professionally? Kuleana. Kuleana is both rights and responsibility. Mm. It has many meanings. It has also legal uh, land um, status, um, which is a whole nother topic, but in the context that I'm using it is Kuleana is a two-sided coin with rights and responsibilities on each side. And, you know, we, we often hear the argument about rights. <coughs> this is, this is our right. You know, our right is this or that or nature's rights and, and, and there's civil rights and constitutional rights and, you know, uh, all of these battles to protect rights and they're very important uh, but we don't hear about responsibility mm. we don't we don't hold corporations responsible for destroying land and air and waterways we don't hold consumers responsible for the purchases we don't hold manufacturers responsible for the byproducts of their purchases. I mean, of their, their, their products that they manufacture. Right. Um, don't hold anyone responsible for the carbon dioxide used and the carbon monoxide. And we don't, we don't have any framework for responsibility. Hmm. We only yell at each other about rights. And so the idea of Kuleana is that, rights and responsibility are inseparable that the rights that i believe that are due me as a living entity on this planet don't just magically appear and cannot just um, abstractly be granted through a document they require a keen understanding and respect for the relationships that are existing between myself and my world. Hmm. And so understanding that in order for us to have the right, for instance, to clean water, it takes the mutual responsibility of our society. Mm -hmm. It's not something that is a one-sided conversation like it is in the western culture so how does that play in do you have like kind of a, a mission based approach to to what you're doing i mean the the projects that i get involved in beyond just making music whether it be writing an anthem for bernie sanders or uh, i'm about to record a song that honors the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombings in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which is this year. Mm. Um, I went to interview Hibaku Shao, survivors of the bombing who are in their 80s last year in Japan and, mm. and wrote a song. Um, whether it's going to Russia and 
recording in the nuclear bunker in Moscow after we had the false alert here of a nuclear mm -hmm. attack or working to fight Monsanto in Hawaii from polluting and doing unregulated open air chemical testing. Mm -hmm. um, all of these things are my kuleana. I choose things that I feel I can have an impact in and bringing awareness around issues through the application of art. Mm. And they drive me. I mean, I'm super passionate about it. Um, but I have to choose carefully because each one costs a lot of money and time and energy. And I'm doing everything on my own. Yeah. So I do what I can. Right. And then there's emotional energy to getting involved in something beyond just being upset about something, right? But taking some responsibility about that. That's so true. And I've suffered a lot, but I have not suffered at all compared to most people in this world. And I'm not afraid of suffering. I'm just learning as I get older to, um, to manage my emotions. Um, you know, I'd rather manage my emotions than have my emotions wildly um, determine my daily life. And mm. it was like that for a long time. As, as I get older, um, hopefully more mature, I'm able to give myself space to be emotional always and never suppress anything. But mm -hmm. also understand that, um, you know, it's like being able to do what I do and create, but not be attached to the outcome. Because if any of us want to see the world different than it is now, and we're attached to that, that just means we're absolutely going to suffer greatly. Mm -hmm. And so we can, I think there's a way to, to listen to that voice that says, Hey, there are a lot of suffering going on. What are you going to do about it? And, and, and not ignore it and do what you can, but at the same time, not let it put you into a depression or not let it bring you down. Because if those of us who really care and can contribute all feel down, it brings our collective vibration down. And I mm -hmm. really believe that we do have a collective vibration and our collective consciousness is very powerful. Mm. Right. And so I guess making this a little more personal for a moment and something we can learn from, like you mentioned, you, you've come a long way over the years in terms of kind of managing your day-to-day -day state. And maybe that's helping you, um, stay engaged with your work and in a way that's sustainable. I'm, I'm curious what you'd say is in your, maybe call it your artist survival kit. Oh, well, number one, I need to have um, my health in order. Mm. That's number one. And so um, I spend a lot of energy being healthy. It's important to me. Mm. Uh, if my body is not well, then it puts a heavy load on my psyche and I can't focus on creating. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, and also knowing when to not act from fear or act from desperation or act from even uh, a place of wanting to help. For instance, um, the past two weeks, I, I just got back and I've been hustling to move into a place because I've really had not had my own place in a few years. Mm. I've been so busy traveling. I've been sleeping at friends' houses and hotels and it's tiring. And uh, with the, I knew that there was a lockdown coming. So I hustled really hard. And of course, all the while I've been watching the news and talking mm -hmm. to and Lieutenant Gover's a good friend of mine and just, you know, trying to stay involved. And it was, you know, a decision of, of mine that, you know, as much as there are so many things to be concerned about, you know, most importantly, our doctors and nurses on the front lines. Yeah. 
in their risks and exposures um, that I needed to get settled and actually take care of my own kuleana first. And I, today and tomorrow, I'm just wrapping up. I still have movers coming and everything. And, mm-hmm. and being able then to be in a healthy space where I can create art and do what I can to contribute in the situation, whether it's writing a song to help people understand what's going on and make the right decisions or um, bring attention to the needs of the community. I, for so long, have operated from a place of ignoring myself Mm. for years and years. I always came last, 100% of the time. And I became kind of a nasty person to be around. Um, My friends and family would often say, you know, you're, you're just so intense and sometimes you're mean. And, and I didn't recognize that the reason was is because I was completely ignoring myself. Right. And I would tell them, you know, whatever, you know, what are you doing for your community? And, you know, I'm doing all these things and I'm, I'm spending all this money and time and energy and trying to run around the world, like bring attention to the nuclear issue and to, to this and that. And what are you guys doing? And, you know, I had this kind of, bad attitude about it because I was empty inside. So recently my mom passed away and I took a break from everything Mm. and I got off social media and everything. And I I decided, you know, I don't want to live like that anymore. And I think I can be more effective in giving back to the world. If I can first ground myself and be healthy and wake up every day and give myself the opportunity to feel some joy. Mm. And, and that's the number one thing I put into my artist survival kit is allow myself to feel joy daily now. And mm. so last night I got on the phone with a friend and we just made each other laugh for like two hours. It was like the best thing. And, mm. and that's all I need. I don't need anything else to make art. I can make art out of anything. You can stick me in the desert, I'll make art. Mm. It's just... Um, it's not about externalities. It's the internal process of being in a space where I feel abundant and it has nothing to do with materialism. It has everything to do with an emotional, spiritual, and mental state of homeostasis where I feel Hmm. inspired to create something, not because I have to, not because the world's burning, but because I've been given a gift and now I want to give it. And I feel that abundance to share. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think that's a profound thing to come to, um, especially, you know, on the heels of your loss, which, you know, my condolences to you. I, I imagine you get really introspective when you lose a loved one, especially a parent. There's a lot of identity and history in that. Yeah, it's not a short process, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so what's next? Uh, well, uh, we just redid the website, and I'm redoing all social media, um, and I'm about to uh, become very active online. Mm. Um, I'm about to start doing, of course, online performances, but also um, releasing of just a huge amount of new music. Um, I just pulled all of my records down from my longtime distributor. So I don't even have music up right now. And um, by next week, everything will be back up. Um, I had to reorganize everything um, for business reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm consolidating control of my art again. And um, very excited to just start sharing. Um, and the main project I'm working on is an original musical for Broadway. Mm. And I've been working on it for 15 years, um, on and off. And I'm about 75% done. I have a writing partner who lives on Kauai and very, um, very, very, very excited about this project. It's a story about a Hawaiian family in a modern context with a lot of historical context that's realist. Um, and reflects the history of Hawaii and the socioeconomic cultural dynamics here um, in the context of American capitalism. Mm. And um, 
I think it's going to be a story that resonates with the world. Um, the songs are outrageous and uh, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of years of creativity are going into it and we're building an incredible team in Chicago to help us um, mm -hmm. bring it to stage. And it's going to be a long process, but it's moving along. That's cool. It sounds like a life work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it is. <laughs> well, that's, that's super exciting. Thanks for sharing about that. So for people who want to follow up and learn more about you, how can they do so? makanamusic.com, M-A-K-A-N-A, music.com, and all of my links to all my music, streaming, um, online store, and social media are all on the website. Great. And if you had any closing advice for people who are driven to be artists um, and maybe uncertain in 2020 about that journey, what would you tell them? I would tell them, um, you know, being an artist is being in the business of dreams. And mm. it's important to have a safe place to dream. Mm. And so when you're creating art, you, you should feel free to dream. But when you're working on capitalizing on your art, when you're working on creating a business around your art, you need to be very much awake and you need to work hard and diligently to understand the marketplace that you want to put your art into. You cannot take for granted that this is the number one thing that artists do is they ignore the business side and they just do their art and they think that somehow everything will be okay. Right. For a few of them it is, but for most of them, they struggle and a lot of artists um, struggle because they don't understand what they're doing once they finish their songs. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I won't say that it's easy, but it's available to anyone who really wants to make it happen. Mm -hmm. You know, understanding distribution, licensing, publishing, understanding, audiences, understanding marketing. I mean, one of the most important things I ever learned was from a friend who was like a father figure. His name was Savas Maharad, who's a mm. restaurateur, and a friend of my mother here. He passed away. And I remember him telling me, marketing is what is in the minds of the masses. And he taught me <laughs> so much about marketing. And I always thought like marketing is disgusting. But then I realized, you know, with, with, Endless voices talking to you. You have to find a way to focus someone's attention on what you're offering them. Yeah. And if you believe in what you're offering people, which I believe in what I'm offering them has actual value, then that's the first start. After that, you have to understand how to connect with them and how to effectively communicate to them that you are going to contribute to their lives in a way that uplifts them. Right. If you give them an experience like that, they'll want more. Hmm. Sage words. Yeah. I, 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 I can attest personally. I feel like I learned everything backwards. <laughs> so coming to only recently really understanding the audience psychology of what I'm doing. And feeling like mm -hmm. that was that was actually the first like stepping stone <laughs> to reaching an audience effectively is understanding what it is you add of value and how you resonate emotionally with somebody but absolutely i mean audiences are a whole science i mean i remember i was touring with paul rogers of bad company and bad company and when i would get on stage i had a good 15 seconds to completely dominate the audience. And if it didn't happen in the 15 seconds, it mm. never. Happened. Yeah. So I made sure it happened. Yeah. How did you do that? <laughs> That's the secret. That's the secret. All right. Stay tuned for the secret. 
Well, Makana, it's been a pleasure absolutely chatting with you today. Thank you, Ethan. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast. 